Sean Sturgis began his career in Hollywood in 1932 as an editor. Then, World War II began in 1939, and the United States' involvement grew after the bombing at Pearl Harbor in 1941. John's career strayed from Hollywood as he changed roles. Instead of editing, John directed many documentaries during the war for the Army Air Forces, the predecessor to today's United States Air Force. After the war ended, John returned to the public's eye as he switched from the editor he was before the war into a director. In 1957, he directed a classic western, The Gunfight at O.K. Corral. Then, in 1960, he directed The Magnificent Seven, a film seeing a reboot this year. But John's westerns aren't the focus of our story today. No, today we're diving through history to take a look at a movie that is considered by many to be one of the greatest World War II films ever made. I'm talking, of course, about 1963's The Great Escape. The timing was certainly on John's mind as he dug into the film. After all, there was just a year after he edited his last film in 1942 when the events in The Great Escape took place for real. The movie was made for only $4 million in 1963, or about $31 million in today's dollars, and returned almost $12 million, or about $93 million in today's dollars. Needless to say, it was a smash hit. The Great Escape was the film that launched Steve McQueen into stardom and made Americans aware of a British actor by the name of Richard Attenborough, not to mention offering significant boosts to many of the film's other stars such as James Garner, Donald Pleasance, James Coburn, and Charles Bronson, just to name a few. Despite having an all-star cast and being based on a true story, most of the characters in the film did not actually exist. Instead, Hollywood opted to merge together multiple people into a single character to help push the story forward while not having to deal with an ensemble cast in the hundreds. As I'm sure you can guess, this also forced them to change the story around from the way that things really happened. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. The movie starts as prisoners arrive at a brand new camp. We get introduced to the purpose of the camp by Commandant Von Luger, who's played by Hans Mesmer, as he explains it to the senior British officer, a Captain Ramsey, played by James Donald. According to Von Luger, the camp has been built by the Nazis to hold the worst of the worst. He goes through a list of prisoners and the number of times they've tried to escape from other camps. This is true. The real camp was called Stalag Luft III. Stalag being a term used for the German prisoner of war camps, and Luft referring to the prisons used for the Luftwaffe, or the prisoners of the German Air Force. It was first opened in March of 1942. It was built specifically to make escape difficult. Well, I suppose all prisoner of war camps are designed to make escape difficult, but this one had a few things in particular that helped make it really tough to escape. For example, all of the housing barracks for the prisoners were about 24 inches off the ground, so guards could see if tunnels were being built. Right away in the movie, the prisoners start to test the prison and its guards. There are multiple individual escape attempts on day one, such as those by Captain Virgil Hiltz, Steve McQueen's character, and his cooler mate Archibald Ives, who's played by Angus Lenny. They test the limits of the perimeter guards. This isn't really true. That is to say, there weren't any escape attempts on the first day. But there was a major successful escape that the movie omits. In truth, it was in the summer of 1943 when the prisoners made their own Trojan horse. 
It was a gymnastics horse used for exercise purposes. At least, that was the cover. Constructed out of plywood and just like the ancient Trojans, it was built big enough to hold a few men inside. Every day, for three months, the horse was carried out to the exact same spot, near a perimeter fence. While prisoners did gymnastics on the horse above, underneath the horse a tunnel was being dug. There wasn't a lot of room, so they dug in shifts, usually of one to two men at a time. The three prisoners who did the digging were Lieutenant Michael Codner, Flight Lieutenant Eric Williams, and Flight Lieutenant Oliver Philpot. When the end of the day came, the prisoners would put a wood plank on top of the hole and then cover it with surface dirt to hide the entrance to the tunnel. Then, the next day, it would start all over again. In a matter of months, the three prisoners managed to dig over 100 feet. They used metal rods to poke through the surface of the ground as air holes, something Hollywood might have used as inspiration for Captain Hilt and Ives' escape attempts later in the movie. It was a cool evening in October when the three prisoners who had spent months digging the tunnel made their escape, and it was very successful. All three made their way out of Germany. Williams and Codder made their way back to Britain by way of a port Stetton and stowing away on a Danish ship. Philpot boarded a train to Danzig as he pretended to be a Norwegian businessman. From there, he stowed away on a Swedish ship and eventually made his own way back to Britain. Back at camp in the movie, the prisoners started to form a team behind squadron leader Roger Bartlett, who's played by Richard Attenborough. According to the movie, Bartlett has the crazy idea of building not one, not two, but three separate tunnels to allow 250 prisoners to escape. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. In truth, the plan was to get 200 prisoners out, not 250 as indicated in the movie, but the idea of building three tunnels was true. And just like in the movie, they were nicknamed Tom, Dick, and Harry. After all, it's not like the prisoners could go around talking about constructing tunnels, so they used code names. In fact, Roger was so serious about using these names that he threatened court-martialing anyone who uttered the word tunnel. As a quick side note, I should probably mention Roger Bartlett was not the real person's name. In truth, Richard Attenborough's character was based on the Royal Air Force Squadron leader, Roger Bushell. So there was no real prisoner named Bartlett. And Bartlett wasn't the only one. Most of the characters in the film were not real, but were based on either one or an amalgamation of multiple people. 
Group Captain Ramsey, who's played by James Donald in the movie, was based on Herbert Massey. Actor Donald Pleasance's character, uh, Lieutenant Colin Blythe, was based on a man by the name of Tim Whalen. Steve McQueen's character in the film, Captain Virgil Hiltz, was based on three different pilots, David M. Jones, John Dorch Lewis, and William Ash. There's too many different characters in the film to list them all here, but most of the people that the characters in the film were based on had their names changed in some form or fashion. However, most of them were fairly accurate in their depiction. For example, even though Colin Blythe wasn't a real person, in the movie, Colin Blythe was the forger. And the person that he was based on, Tim Whalen, was the forger in the prisoner escape. So in the movie, as they begin construction on the tunnels, the prisoners come across two issues. The first is to keep the tunnels from collapsing, rather important. To stop this, they collect wood from anywhere they can. That is very true, and just like in the movie, it was mostly bedboards that provided the wood that they needed to keep the tunnel from collapsing on them. Now, another major issue that they came across was that the dirt they're pulling out of the tunnel doesn't match the topsoil. It'll be way too obvious that they're digging. The man in the movie who has been tasked with figuring out a solution to this is Lieutenant Eric Ashley Pitt, who is portrayed on screen by David McCollum. Eric's solution is to carry the dirt out in tubes inside the prisoner's pants. Then they pull a pin inside their pockets and the prisoners can release the dirt and kick it around with their feet. This is all very true, and it goes back to one of the reasons why the worst of the worst were sent to Stalag Luft III. The location for the camp was on the eastern side of Germany, near Sagan, and it had been chosen because it naturally had a very sandy soil underground, and on top was a very bright yellow color to the surface sand. The Nazis were smart and took advantage of this natural difference in color, turned it into a design feature of the camp to help aid against tunnels. But while the Nazis may have been smart, the prisoners were smarter. To overcome this design feature of Stalag Luft III, the prisoners called on their very own sand dispersal specialist. Well, that's what he became while he was a prisoner, at least. In the movie, this is the character of Eric Ashley Pitt. But as you recall, the film changed the names of the prisoners. In truth, the sand dispersal specialist was Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm Pilot by the name of Peter Fanshaw. But Peter's method of dispersing of the sand was very much the same as what the movie indicated. They used a bunch of old socks and made small pouches that they could hide inside prisoners' pants. Maybe it was in the gardens that they were tending, or maybe it was while carrying on a normal conversation, but many of the methods that they show in the movie are how they actually were able to get rid of the darker sand from the tunnels and mix it with the brighter sand. Around the camp, they called the men who carried the sand penguins because they looked like the birds as the sand inside their pants created bulges. After the war, one prisoner estimated that there were over 200 prisoners who helped disperse the sand, making well over 25,000 trips. What the movie doesn't mention, though, is that the German guards caught on to this method. They became suspicious when a lot of the prisoners started wearing greatcoats, which they did to help conceal larger portions of sand. After catching some prisoners with sand, they were tipped off to the fact that something was going on. But they simply couldn't find the entrance to the tunnels, even though they tried time and time again. 
The movie depicts where the tunnel entrances are. Uh, Harry was a drain in one of the washrooms. Tom was under a stove. It doesn't really mention the entrance to Dick. In truth, it was Dick that was in the drain. Harry's entrance was under the stove, and Tom's entrance was just in a dark corner next to a chimney. Try as they might, the Germans couldn't find these entrances. Something else they don't mention in the movie is that there were 19 prisoners that the Germans rounded up in an attempt to stop the tunnels from being built. Now these 19 were picked as top suspects for constructing the tunnels after the guards caught some prisoners with sand, but they didn't really know who was involved. And in truth, only 6 of the 19 were actually building the tunnels. So construction continued. Still, after the Germans started to catch on to the old sock dumping technique, the prisoners had to find an alternative method to get rid of the sand. This leads to something else that the movie doesn't depict, the closing of one of the tunnels. The first place that they started dumping the sand was in one of the three tunnels. They kept digging Tom and Harry, but the Germans extended the camp to where the exit for Dick was supposed to be. Of course, the Germans didn't know this, but it still messed with the plans for one of the tunnels. Since they needed a place to throw sand, they scrapped Dick and started filling it up. They also used it for storage of any contraband, maps, official papers that they were using to create forgeries, German uniforms they'd managed to scrounge, and so on. Since I mentioned scrounging, there's something else that the movie didn't really touch on. In the movie, it's James Garner's character, Lieutenant Robert Hendley, who does wonders scrounging whatever the prisoners need. He does a lot of this by making friends with Werner, one of the German guards played by Robert Graf. By now, you probably could guess that there really was no real Robert Henley. Although, interestingly, the actor who played Henley, James Garner, was himself a scrounger when he served in the Korean War. Maybe one of the reasons why Hollywood changed the story was because the true story itself is quite unbelievable. In truth, there were a number of prisoners who scrounged items. And the unbelievable part is that there were also many German guards who provided the prisoners with supplies. As it turns out, there were some Germans who were susceptible to bribery, and that's how the prisoners got maps, railroad times, civilian clothing, and even official papers that the prisoners then forged and duplicated. So while the movie made it seem like Captain Hiltz escaped on his own just so that he could scout out the area to build a map and then let himself get caught, that's not true. As construction continued on the two remaining tunnels, Dick started to get filled up. They had to find somewhere else to hide the sand coming out of Tom and Harry. At this point, it was the winter at the tail end of 1943, and the ground would frequently be covered in snow. This made it impossible to go back to scattering sand on top of the snow without being caught. You can't just mix in the sand on top of snow. Instead, they had the idea to hide the sand inside one of the largest buildings on the compound, the theater. They unhinged one of the seats and proceeded to stuff sand under the entire seating area. Problem solved. There's a pivotal moment in the movie where the three Americans, Steve McQueen's Captain Hiltz, James Garner's Henley, and Judd Taylor's Goff, who celebrate July 4th by making moonshine for the prisoners. Everyone takes a break from tunnel building as they celebrate. It's during this celebration that the Germans happen upon the entrance to one of the tunnels, Tom. While it's true that the Germans did eventually find Tom, that is not how it happened. 
outside the camp, World War II was raging, and as the United States started to increase its activity in the European theater, German POW camps started to get more and more Americans. Stalag Luft III was no exception to this, and more and more Americans started pouring into the camp. This meant more prisoners to work on the tunnels, but it didn't necessarily mean they'd be able to get everyone out. After all, the original plan of 200 was audacious enough. With an increase of prisoners, this meant they could increase the work on the tunnels. But this would also prove to be their downfall. German guards knew about the penguins, prisoners who were carrying sand beneath their pants. They may have changed where they were dumping the sand, but they still had to carry it out from the tunnel. And that location did not change. So the prisoners knew to look for guards and they were trying to only bring it out when the guards weren't looking. But the Germans tried something different. They hid in the woods outside the camp to watch where the penguins came from. Like a breadcrumb trail, they traced the penguins back to one specific hut. Once they were sure something was going on in this hut, the Germans barged in. This time, they found Tom. Another aspect that's not covered in the movie is just how many escape attempts the prisoners were trying. The movie does allude to letting some prisoners try to escape so the Germans didn't think the prisoners weren't trying to escape. After all, the lack of escape attempts would surely put the Germans on an even higher alert. But to put this into perspective, when the Germans found the entrance to Tom, that was the 98th tunnel that they discovered at Stalag Luft III since it had opened. Remember that even though the plan was to have 200 men escape at once in what we now know as the Great Escape, that was only a fraction of the prisoners in the camp. Needless to say, the prisoners were busy. In the movie, it's after Tom is discovered when Archibald Ives, played by Angus Lenny, cracks. He tries to use the commotion of the Germans finding the tunnel as a diversion to scale the barbed wire fence. According to the movie, he didn't make it. Sadly, this is true. The character of Archibald Ives was based on a man by the name of Jimmy Cadell. While the finding of Tom may have differed, we know about the fate of Jimmy from Frank Stone, who was a prisoner at Stalag Luft III in 1943. Frank said of how Archibald Ives dies in the film, quote, He was a pal of mine called Jimmy Cadell. He really was shot like that, end quote. After Tom was found, the morale among the prisoners understandably was low. They had started with three tunnels, and they decided to scrap one if the Germans had built over their planned escape. Now they were down to just one tunnel, Harry, left undiscovered. In the movie, after Tom is found, Richard Attenborough's character, Roger Bartlett, says, We dig. In truth, the real Roger Bushell ordered work on Harry shut down after Tom was found, they didn't give up, of course, they just couldn't risk the last big tunnel being found. So they waited. Months later, in January of 1944, things had settled down enough to where they felt it was safe to start working on Harry again. This isn't depicted in the movie either, but the date of the escape changed. After starting up work on Harry again, their target was to escape in the summer of 1944 when the weather was nicer, making it easier to cross German territories after they got out of the camp. But soon after work resumed on the tunnel, the German Gestapo paid an unexpected visit to Stalag Luft III. They put more pressure on the Germans running the camp, and as a result, the guards started looking for more escape attempts. 
To counter this, Roger decided to move the escape attempt up. After all, there was no guarantee that the Germans wouldn't find the last tunnel. Rather than the summer, a new date was set in March of 1944, or as soon as the tunnel was complete. While work on the tunnel was being completed, Roger had started something Richard Attenborough's version of the character does in the movie, decide who goes and who stays. It couldn't have been easy. The system he devised was to break up into two groups. The first group of 100 were people those who were planning the escape thought had the best chance. They included prisoners who spoke fluent German, maybe had a history of escapes and weren't likely to survive in prison, or those that everyone considered had worked the most on the tunnels. The second group of 100 were luck of the draw. They drew lots to determine these 100 men and included people who couldn't speak German at all, those who everyone really didn't expect to have much of a chance. Still, some chance is better than none. By the time Harry was ready, over 600 prisoners had worked on the three different tunnels in the escape attempt, but only 200 would be offered the chance to use them. The movie makes it seem like they had to go on a specific day because of their forged paperwork. That's not really true. After the tunnel was completed and everything was ready to go, they had to wait for a moonless night. The darkness would help them make their escape. They ended up waiting for a week until on Friday, March 24th, 1944, the night came. Harry's entrance was under Hut 104, so as the sun began to set, the lucky 200 prisoners who would make their escape started to make their way to the hut without being seen by the guards. Right away, they hit a snag. The entrance to the tunnel was frozen shut. It took them about an hour and a half before they could get the tunnel opened up. In the movie, when they're about to escape, it's Steve McQueen's character who breaks the ground on the exit. He pulls down a bunch of grass before realizing they've made a big mistake. The tunnel is too short. This is very true. The tunnel was completed, but they didn't make a hole on the other end until they were ready for escape. So it was when everyone was getting into one end of the tunnel when they realized on the other end that they were too short. The plan was to have the tunnel come out inside nearby woods, but they were just short of the tree line. So just like in the movie, this put a damper on their escape plans. Instead of being able to stream 200 people through the tunnel like clockwork, they had to time their escape one at a time, an escape that had started an hour and a half later than they planned because of the tunnel being frozen shut in the beginning. Now, they were only able to get out about 10 people per hour. There's no way they'd be able to get 200 people out before daybreak. Then, just like in the movie, an allied air raid hit and the camp went dark to avoid being seen by the bombers. While the darkness helped them from being seen, the movie accurately depicts the fact that the tunnel had electronic light bulbs. This meant that the camp went dark and so did the tunnel. To compound matters more, at about 1 o'clock a.m., the tunnel collapsed, so the escape was delayed even further as the collapsed portion was frantically repaired. In the movie, there's a man who's seen escaping from the tunnel by a guard, and that's how the escape is discovered. Although the movie doesn't make a point of counting how many made it out of the tunnel, the way in which the tunnel was discovered is true. The escape that began at around 10 p.m. the night before continued until 4.55 a.m. when a German guard noticed something moving outside the camp. 
On closer inspection, he saw a man coming out of the tunnel. Although the guards didn't know it at the time, that was the 77th man to have escaped from the tunnel. The tunnel was discovered, but the Germans still didn't know where the tunnel entrance was. It was a German guard who crawled through the tunnel's exit that ended up helping them find the entrance. Well, he ended up getting stuck, and when he couldn't make his way through, he started calling for help. The prisoners knew their gig was up, and they felt they'd be punished even more if they didn't help, so they showed the Germans where the entrance was. Still, 76 of the 200 men had made it out. The race was on to make their way to freedom. In the movie, there's an all-out search that starts once the Germans realize the extent of the escape. They start scouring the countryside as they're looking for the escaped prisoners. This is very much true. The prisoners from Stalag Luft III certainly didn't know it at the time, but the mere scale of the escape threw a major wrench in the Nazi war effort at a critical time. Thanks to the Allies eventually winning the war, we have access to a lot of documentation from the Third Reich that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. Because of this, we know it took a combination of police, Hitler Youth, and soldiers. There were thousands called on to help find the prisoners. And this happened at the tail end of March of 1944, just a couple months before the Allies invaded on D-Day in June. While the Nazis may not have known exactly when or where the Allies would strike, they knew the Allies were planning a major invasion of some sort. So the diversion of thousands of troops and police away from the Nazis preparing beaches or countryside for a potential invasion was huge. Of course, we'll never know exactly what sort of impact this had on the outcome. We only know what the eventual outcome was. According to the movie, over 50 of the escaped prisoners eventually get rounded up. They're put into trucks and sent back to camp. On the way, the camera focuses on Roger Bartlett, the mastermind behind the escape, as he expresses that even though they failed, he's happy with everything. Just as the truck pulls off for a rest stop, Roger says, quote, I've never been happier, end quote. Then, as Roger and the rest of the prisoners are stretching their legs, they turn around at the sound of the Germans setting up a machine gun. All 50 are slaughtered. I'd really like to say that this isn't true. The only thing that isn't true about this is how it happened. The movie sped up the timeline to make it seem like it happened right after they were caught. In truth, the news of the escape traveled to Hitler soon after it happened. He was livid. Of the 76 men who escaped, 73 of them were caught again. They returned to camp, and Hitler wanted to murder them all, to teach a lesson to other prisoners. But he didn't stop there. Hitler wanted Commandant von Lindner, the man who designed Stalag Luft III, to be executed as well, and the camp security officer, and all of the guards on duty at the time. Hitler wanted to kill them all. It was Hermann Göring, who talked Hitler out of this murderous idea. He convinced Hitler it would violate the Geneva Conventions, which is interesting considering the other murderous acts Nazis are known for doing throughout the war. Still, Hitler decided not to kill them all. Of course, Commandant von Lindner was replaced. On April 6, 1944, the new camp commandant, Eric Cordes, announced to the senior British officer at the camp that 41 of the prisoners were shot while resisting arrest. Nine more were also murdered for similar reasons. 
50 of the 73 prisoners who had been recaptured were dead a few days after the escape. Of the remaining escapees, 17 stayed at Stalag Luft III for the duration of the war. Four were sent to a concentration camp in Sachsenhausen, where, a few months later, they tunneled out of that camp, but they were caught and returned. The final two were sent to another camp on the south, O-Flag 4, C. Kolditz. In the end, the movie accurately depicts the result of the Great Escape. The original plan was to have 200 people escape, but only 76 made it out. Of those 76, only three actually avoided being recaptured and made it back to Britain. The final scene in the movie is Steve McQueen, Captain Hilt, being thrown back into the cooler for his part in the escape. It's something we see happen a lot in the movie as Hilt earns the name the Cooler King. As we learned earlier, Captain Hilt was an amalgamation of three people, but one of those men was William Ash, and William was the original Cooler King. He wasn't a biker. That whole scene at the end where Steve McQueen runs into the barbed wire fence before getting caught was made up for the movie. It was something Steve McQueen wanted to add because of his love of riding. But William was even more feisty than Captain Hilt's on screen and was sent to the cooler countless times for the dozens of escape attempts on his record. After the escape, the Germans took an inventory of the camp. Again, because of access to Third Reich documentation, we're able to know what this inventory turned up. Over 4,000 bedboards were missing. 19 bunk beds had simply disappeared, along with 1,212 bed bolsters, 635 mattresses, 192 sheets, 1,700 blankets, and 161 pillowcases. But that wasn't all that had disappeared. 52 large 20-man wooden tables, 10 single tables, 34 chairs, 76 benches, 1,370 bedding battens, 1,219 knives, 478 spoons, 582 forks, 69 lamps, 246 water cans, 3,424 towels, 600 feet of rope, and over 1,000 feet of electric wiring. For all of this, the Gestapo executed the guards who had not reported the disappearances. And from then on, prisoners were only given nine boards for their bed, and the guards made a point of counting them daily. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. There's a ton of great information out there on the escape from Stalag Luft III, but if you're looking for a place to start, I'd recommend a website dedicated to one of the men who was involved in the escape, Alfie Fripp. It's called therealgreatescape.com. Thanks for listening to the Based on a True Story podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed learning about the real great escape as much as I have. This show is made on my own and in my spare time, so I certainly don't have the big budget as the podcast that you see on the top list. But I don't care about that because I have you. You are the reason why I make this show. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not share it with one of your friends? Help spread the word with your family and friends. You can find all of the other movies we've learned about at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And you can join in the discussion on Facebook at facebook.com slash basedonatruestorypodcast. And lastly, if you want to get in touch with me, I really hope that you do. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.